and welcome to the Alien Minute podcast, the daily podcast where we carefully dissect the movie Alien one minute at a time. I'm Mitch Bryan. And I'm John Engel. And today we're talking about minute number 14, which begins with the continuation of a countdown and ends with the Nostromo disengaging from the refinery. Our guest Todd Norris is here. And uh, this is probably a good time to take a minute to talk about the cinematographer. Yeah, and, and probably as a segue to, to lead into this uh, this minute, uh, in terms of the, the live-action stuff uh, on the bridge, uh, we noticed that there's a lot of handheld work, and we can talk more about the, the implications of, of that. But uh, the, the cinematographer of this movie, uh, is name, his name is Derek Van Lint. And uh, I was always of the mind that he was kind of a... a, a a non-person that Ridley Scott was sort of the actual cinematographer of the movie. I think that was sort of the common um, opinion about this movie because nobody. When you look at his list of credits, this Derek Van Lint guy hasn't done much stuff, so you just go, "Oh, well, he must have just been hired." On. I don't know. I mean, I just never thought that he was anybody of of note. Um, but it turns out that the reason that he may not get as much credit as is due is because uh, I think he was much more interested in shooting commercials than he was features. And so he was constantly working back that he had he had done probably over a hundred commercials for Ridley Scott as his director of photography, which is the reason why he got tapped to be the cinematographer of Alien. And he continued to do that. His only other feature film really of credit is Dragon Slayer. Yeah. Um, but in reading about him, the whole thing was he would say, you know, I can make a whole lot more money doing these commercials than shooting these features. And I think he felt like, you know, each one of these commercials was a new challenge and he just enjoyed doing that. And um, but he was very good at what he what he did. And he did have a significant contribution to the film Alien. And um, but certainly it was Ridley Scott being the the visual stylist that he is and the A, the a camera operator um, still deserves a lot of the credit, of course, for the look of the movie. It's interesting that the cinematographer isn't credited in the front titles. Well, maybe that's another reason, too. I had forgotten about that, that he isn't... That is actually really true. It's um, the first title that comes up at the end of the movie. Right. Um, which that is odd. Is, that is very odd. Yeah. Um, so I I do know that he and the uh, the gaffer... Who I feel bad that I don't remember the gaffer's name, but they deserve a lot of the credit because they were the ones that figured out how to light that movie with all the with the practical lights, the fluorescent lights, and the lights on the ceiling, and then also the floor units to make it look completely naturalistic. But um, I do remember the Derek Van Lint complaining. He's like, well, you know, Ridley storyboarded every every shot, and he operated the A camera, and he said, and I operated the B camera. Whenever Ridley's camera wasn't in my shot, <laughs> I think that uh, Adrian Biddle, who was the was he the he was the focus, focus puller, puller for he Ridley's would go camera. on to shoot some other pictures for Ridley Scott. Exactly. So Adrian Biddle uh, was probably, in my mind, best known as he's the guy who was the director of photography of Aliens. Right. Um, he replaced somebody else. I remember. I don't remember who he replaced, but James Cameron. This is getting off into a whole probably another podcast, but. Uh, James Cameron did not get along with whoever the first cinematographer was, or actually it was vice versa. The DP didn't respect Cameron, and they replaced him with Adrian Biddle. Yeah. You know, the use of that handheld camera is really interesting. I'm sure some of it might be practical because 
the couple of the angles in this particular scene, they look pretty cramped. Um, but I would argue too that as an aesthetic, Scott uses it to build tension, and he does it. He does it in Blade Runner. He does it in, in other movies where the camera's locked down, and then in certain moments where there's a psychological, an overt psychological tension or an overt conflict, uh, he moves into handheld, and it creates immediacy. It creates tension. It's really and it, and it's a contrast, which is what's wonderful about it. I mean, you, you only spot it if if you had some lockdown shots. If everything was handheld, then you wouldn't be thinking about it in those terms. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's definitely true, and and that that's part of the whole aesthetic that Ridley Scott was trying to do with this movie was give it a sense of naturalism that science fiction certainly didn't have, and that includes not only the handheld camera but also shooting directly into light sources, which happens later in the movie when they crash land. But uh, that idea of just basically lens flare, you know, the thing that J.J. Abrams fetishizes so much now, was of course kind of considered a mistake and a lot of cinematographers in the 60s like Conrad Hall and stuff uh, you know Vilmos Zygmunt and those guys Laszlo Kovacs using lens flare as an aesthetic choice this is one of the first movies that really in science fiction I think does that where there's just lots of shooting into lights and lots of lens flare there's really only one shot I think in Star Wars that even does that and that's the very first shot with the uh, Star Destroyer flying over the screen there's a little bit of lens flare on the the engines at the back of the ship, which may not have even been intentional. But the rest of the movie, again, looks like that studio-lit picture, and Alien looks more like a documentary. So we've been talking about the 1979 version of Alien, and that is yeah. essentially what this podcast is about. But, John, you want to say a couple of things about um, some of the things that appear sure. or disappear in the director's cut? Yeah, we we haven't pointed out until now that this is the, the version we're watching is the 1979 original cut, theatrical cut of the movie. But I think it is, um, there's good reason to discuss some of the changes that were made for the director's cut, uh, mainly because this, the director's cut is not a special edition. It's not added material per se. It's material that was shot at the time and intended to be in the movie and cut out. And we want to talk about why those choices were made. And um, really at the beginning, it would be pretty much at the beginning of this minute or at the end of the last minute in the, um, in the uh, 2003 version, there's an entire scene added in. And the scene is uh, takes place on the bridge, and it is the crew gathering to listen to the transmission that has brought them here to the planet. And, um, you know, at the time, Ridley Scott decided to cut out. I don't know why. We could discuss why he decided to put it back in for the director's cut. But uh, in case you haven't seen it, just to give it context, uh, uh, the way it is uh, uh, shot, Lambert is the one that is, uh, she's in the foreground of the shot. She is playing the transmission. The rest of the crew is kind of standing around drinking coffee, listening to it. And, uh, Mitch, what do you think, let's say this movie or this scene is in the movie, uh, was left in the movie. What do you think it would have added at the time or taken away at the time? I, I don't miss it at all. Right. I, I When I saw it, I thought it was interesting enough. But I want them to get down to the planet. I yeah. want I want to get this keep this thing moving. And it's a movie that operates at such a, sort of slow, simmering boil that it's important that we keep it moving forward, even if it's going to move forward in a deliberately paced manner. And I think you take that scene out and it really moves. And and it moves as so often it falls in these beautiful one-minute increments. That's why this yeah. podcast is not a bad idea because it every minute and certainly every two minutes, something really does kind of happen that propels the narrative ahead. So 
in a way, it's looking back. I mean, the signal's already come in. It's already waking them up. It's already done this, that, and the other. How much, how much more information do we need about it? And in fact, how much mystery does it maybe remove by spending the time talking that's, about it? That's exactly what I was going to bring up. No, there's two ways of looking at it. Um, this this transmission is very mysterious, and we know this already. Um, we don't really need to keep thinking about the fact that it's mysterious. Uh, we don't need to be reminded that it's mysterious. It already is. So we haven't heard it. We don't know where it's coming from. Dallas is laid out very clearly, unknown origin, not necessarily human, not necessarily SOS. So uh, I will say that this scene has a feeling to it. I, I, there's, there's one positive to it. that It does, it's, it's kind of creepy. Like when you hear the sound, when you hear the transmission, it's like eerie. And you kind of get that sense from all the crew members too. Um, that they're like, whoa, what is this? This is something I think they even say, this is not something that we've ever heard before, anything that we can translate or, um, and Lambert, of course, she's playing. And of course she is like, oh man, this, what is this? Well, I think we, I do think we've already gotten all this as far as character development. We've already gotten all this, uh, information that we get in that scene from the characters in the last scene. So I'm not exactly sure what it adds in that sense. And, and um, as far as the mystery goes, it's a mysterious, it's a scene that's about the mystery of the transmission, but that's, it's really on the nose yeah. as far as telling you, and isn't this transmission mysterious? And ultimately the transmission is a red hair. I mean, it doesn't really have a whole lot to do with the plot anyway. I mean, it, it does, but in the sense it just, it goes away after the obvious thing happens. So like, maybe right. better to just get rid of it now and not keep calling reason, attention to this transmission. I, I, one way or another, they got to go check it out. Yeah. Right. The only thing that's added, um, one one thing I'll point out, do you remember Ash's bit? I think it's at the very end of the scene. Um, I think what Lambert is doing is she's giving some more of the topography of the planet. She's reading the topography of the planet a little bit. And we see that in some of the readouts in the this minute. Um, and Ash just kind of mumbles, you could walk on it. She says, you can that's walk right. on that's it. That's right. That's the last line of the and scene. And Ripley reacts to that. She looks at him like, what are you, crazy? Well, I think that the walking on the, you know, the, the the planetary walk is something that comes up, and I think it comes up, it's mentioned by a better source. Yes, I agree. Um, it serves the character. It doesn't tell us anything about about Ash, but when we talk later on about how far we can walk out there, it tells us a lot about both Kane and Dallas in terms of the action and the reaction. Well, I, I do actually do think it adds, it is something, there's a bit of Ash character there, because it's him... Laying the groundwork, yeah, you guys could do this. Yeah. yeah, you guys, he's sort of laying the groundwork of, yeah, you're going to go out and get this thing that we want. But um, I don't think it's necessary there yeah. at all. We get so much of that later, and it's better to hold off on his um, underhandedness and uh, I do for like, a while. Anyway. And I do like the contrast of the cut from the argument that has just been buttoned up to, boom, Yeah, we go to the ship, we're in space again, uh, we, see, we see the uncoupling. Uh, we see a, a wider shot of of the planets and everything. Right. Uh, so I don't know. I'm I'm well, happy. We're, I'm I, happy we're moving towards the planet. The, in that last minute ends. Well, Parker's argument ends by him saying he looks over, slaps Brett in the chest, and says, "We're we're going down." Well, why not just go down? Yeah, yeah. he's I mean, saying it. Let's that's, go. That's it's probably good, why they transition. really decided to cut that scene was because just on a propulsion level, it goes from a line we're going in to a shot of them going in, and you eliminate that unnecessary moment. Yeah. Um, I know we did want to talk about the sound mix yeah. too, and what's cool is, is as a great segue, that deleted scene that we were talking about. One of the things that I felt was kind of goofy about the director's cut and that scene is that all the 
sound effects when Lambert is pushing the buttons to do her analysis. It's all sound effects that are recycled from earlier in the movie yep. because, you know, it's 2003 and they didn't want to create any new sound effects. So it feels a little canned because every th- every button she pushes, it's like on Star Trek. After you've heard those sounds of the buttons on the bridge, you just know them by heart. And it it seems less scary because it's like, oh, here's the same old from the opening sequence well, again. It's, it's like, couldn't you have made some new sounds? Funny enough, Mitch, it's it's the sound at the beginning of our podcast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> when she fires up the computer, it's our sound effects that we yeah. use. When it popped up, I went, oh, man, this is, yeah. It is very I would, familiar. I might not have even thought about it being recycled. As you know. Yeah, I mean, after you've seen this movie a number of times, like we yeah. all have, it's like, oh, it's the same the same old buttons. Couldn't, yeah. 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 But, but on a positive note. Yes. About the sound mix. Oh, you're turning to me? <laughs> Let's have you guys talk about it. Well, sure. I mean, okay, one of the things I thought about, and this is going to be one of those, what did we know in 1979 or what had been established in cinema, um, whether it be genre cinema or anything, with sound design, sound mix, and uh, what they do here. Um, I'm not sure. I, other than Star Wars um, and, T- and THX, I guess, Lucas and Ben Burt. Did Ben Burt do THX? Just a offhand. I can't remember. But Ben Burt's approach to sound design in Star Wars, for instance, like the Stormtrooper helmets, the the CB, you know, the CB communication and how it cuts in and out, how it fades as they're walking away and so on. Um, the mix here, to me, reminds me of as they're communicating with each other, you get different levels, you get different uh, bits of white noise in the background and so on. It's, it reminds me of CB communication a little bit. And I'm wondering if, you know, had people done this before? Very much, and are they not just reestablishing again? These are truckers in space, and and convoy had just come out. And we just <laughs> were talking about that the other day. How the, the trucker the trucker movie was a bit in vogue at the time, so were they not playing off that a little bit? Well, I do think the word for that, I do it. think that that the other thing it does because it has these different tones and frequencies and dropouts and static. It all helps build this quasi faulty technology thing that happens once we get to the planet right. you know i mean for 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 this high tech world that we're in man once things start to go south they go south fast you know there's fires and sparks and cameras cutting out and and all of that is great from a tension point of view because yeah. you, you can't rely on any of this stuff and it just makes it that much scarier yeah. It is funny you bringing that up with convoy and things like that i do think in the 1970s in terms of sound mix there was this among the sort of you know the new the new 70s film directors this kind of fetishization of radio chatter and cbs because even in films like close encounters that whole air traffic control scene yeah. early in the movie where everybody's talking at once and you're hearing the the uh, plane pilots talking i know as a kid i i dug that a lot and i used to make audio skits that had a lot of cb and radio chatter i still love it i love that well stuff. in the conversation of course the yeah. total movie is a total sound fetish we're, movie. we're wearing headphones right now yeah. this is, is awesome. it too much of a reach to to draw back to altman on this i mean is it altman's mm. you know the way he would place mics throughout this and he wanted to like mix in and out sound from different conversations on the set i feel like that was you know it was, he used yeah. it in mash and that's yeah, kind of the beginning of this, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, there's, there's. It all goes towards this greater goal of of naturalism. Yeah, of Im- imperfection. And, and that's kind of gone away in filmmaking. In, in yeah. you know, that sort of everybody stepping on each other's lines and that overlapping dialogue. I really would love a return to that. Yeah. Well, it's deep. It's deeply embedded in like what they call the mumblecore mm. thing. But 
to not I don't think they think about the technique of sound mixing in those movies enough and that's why it's called mumblecore I mean, they're trying to do it but they're, it's, it almost feels a little bit lazy there but. I meant to do that yeah <laughs> yeah the one sound that it would talk about Star Wars again I or you were saying that in Close Encounters that one when I was a kid and still this day the sound edit of the and I already mentioned the stormtroopers but when they're Stormtroopers are headed down the hallway of the Death Star, and they say they may be on levels five or six now, mm -hmm. and it fades. It's, to this day, that still gives me chills. I don't know why. It's like a great, <laughs> it's a great segue because they, you know, fade off, and then Obi Wan appears. He was just hiding there. And well, then there's that great to... John Williams timpani, do 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 do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that uh, does give me chills now that I think. Sound design is yeah, not talked about enough, <laughs> but yeah. huge part of why we enjoy movies, and it's definitely, and what they're establishing here, like we said, where they're kind of getting away from it now. But using it in science fiction, this, like the things that Robert Altman established, and then we're finding them in science fiction films now is very. It's cool that it was able to make its way into genre. I would I would just also add that in this episode, uh, at the end of this minute, you you come back to uh, this insistence on process that yeah. exists in Alien. There's a lot of time given to the procedures, whether it's the procedures of looking for where we are in this, in checking the star maps, trying to find out where we are. Um, we get a, an extended process of how the ship uncouples from, from the, you know, the larger factory that it's towing. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I think that kind of meticulous routine is another thing that makes the movie so interesting because you, you, not only does it immerse you in this world, but if you can establish a routine, then when something shows up to wreck the routine, yeah. you really understand it. And and so I just think the insistence on process in this movie is really fantastic. I agree. Well, yeah. that's actually a pretty good segue to the next minute, unless you have something else to Oh, I was just going to – the last thing we should mention in terms of the uh, inspirations for sound, uh, it occurred to me that the movie Silent Running also probably has a lot of that sort of yeah. uh, chatter going yeah. on and that – that might have been an influence as well. Silent Running. It, we we kind of predicted that Silent Running was going to come up from time to time, yeah. didn't we, last week? Yeah, it's one of the few it's a, space movies of the time that was trying to do kind of what Alien is trying right. to do. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, um, that's it for minute number 14. Uh, we'll make sure and tune in tomorrow for minute number 15. Um, check us out at alienminute.com. You can email me at john at alienminute.com or uh, check us out on Twitter as well at alienminutepod. Thank you and see you tomorrow.